Welcome to the Meta Spiritual Podcast. My name is Tori Madison, your host. On this podcast, we explore the mystical, metaphysical, the metaverse, and mental health. Join us as we dive deeper into the multidimensional realms of artificial intelligence, virtual worlds, collective evolution, and the future of technology's impact on humanity. In this episode, I speak with Ron Rivers, the author of Self-Actualization and the Age of Crisis, and co-founder of SpiritDAO, a 501c3 religious nonprofit decentralized autonomous organization. Ron sits at the intersection of spirituality, Web3, AI, political economy, philanthropy, and systemic reformation. The core thesis of the book is the recognition of a single truth, the reality of change. It explores the idea that our current systems and institutions rooted in static principles are inadequate for addressing the dynamic and ever-changing nature of our universe. The book discusses various crises facing humanity, such as the crisis of extinction, billionaire god kings, the crisis of misinformation, truth, and trust, and many more. To overcome these crises, the book advocates for self and systemic actualization, which involves restructuring our legal, political, economic, and spiritual systems in alignment with the single truth and the relational universe. We also discuss the role and impact of artificial intelligence on society and individual self-actualization. Welcome, Ron. Thank you for having me, Tori. It's a genuine pleasure. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me too. I'm definitely looking forward to this. So I love how you open the book with the concept of time in your book, Self-Actualization in the Age of Crisis, which the title is super interesting. How do we self-actualize when we are living in an age of crisis? And we're going to get into that. Um, but I, I really wanted to start with the concept of time because I think it's so fascinating. Every decision that we make has to do with our time-space reality in, in which we live. In your book, you open with the concept of time and how it affects our lives. You have a chapter called Time and the Divinity of the Moment. And you write, time is both the expansion of singular moments and the simultaneous experience of all moments prior. Each individual observer inhabits a fraction of the nearly infinite happenings occurring simultaneously throughout the universe, containing both the immediate present and past, far gone, but as real as ever. And the immediate present of intersecting realities occurs through each observer, bringing their own complex and unique histories to the moment with an unavoidable bias towards specific ways of thinking and acting based on their inheritance of being. Wow, that really intrigued me. And then you use an example as the United States Constitution. We are bound to frozen moments in time that we had no voice in crafting. Can you go into more detail about all of that for me? Yeah, absolutely. So in the the context of like in the passage you quoted each of us kind of inherits this immediate present right and, and in many ways we have you know our own personal decisions that we've made throughout our journey that kind of bring us to the present but we also 
put into context that the vast majority of happenings, the vast majority of things happening in the universe happen to us, right? There, we, we've kind of inherited these circumstances. So much of the crisis, much of the meta-crisis, the age of crisis, was in motion well before you or I were born, probably well before anyone listening to this was born, right? We're, we've kind of inherited this momentum, this direction, if you will. And in the context of time and our experience of it, we each of us inhabits kind of this unique conscious coordinates, right? We sit, uh, we occupy a space that none others can enter. But at the same time, you know, we, we recognize that our relationship with the world is very much inseparable from the outside, right? There's, there's no, no separation of it. So in regards to our systems, like you mentioned, the United States Constitution, I use the word system a lot. So let me just provide some context. A system is any, any technology, it could be law, politics, economics, um, that governs the relationships between people, right? So in the, in the example of the U.S. Constitution, you have a, a document written for a human time experience in the 1700s, right? So vastly different than what we presently inhabit in our immediate present. But that document has, I would argue, the most outsized influence of any you know, government or legal document um, in the history of the world in, in relation to influencing our immediate present, especially in the context of global organization. And when we talk about how, like the nature of time, right? there's a chapter in the book, a subsection in the book um, called The Changing Nature of Time. Right? We've, we've inherited many of our institutions that were designed for what I would argue is a linear time experience. That is to say that the, the pace of change, um, while omnipresent, right, always happening, was relatively slow, right? The gaps in progress were noticeable, but not super frequent. Most of life was, was fairly repetitive. And today, I think a, a central component of the crisis and, and kind of why we're subject and, and why we struggle to kind of overcome the various challenges surrounding us is that we're kind of bound to these institutions designed for a linear time experience when we live in an exponential moment, an exponential era, right? The I think of, um, you know, you can't go anywhere now, for example, without uh, AI, right? Like AI is everywhere. But your consumer-grade AI is what, six months old, seven months old? It's, it's really not that old, yet it perpetually permeates everything. And now the pace of change is accelerating so quickly that, you know, as observers in an informational universe, the way we experience time, the way we experience the moment, being in the totality of the moment, changes as, as we receive more information inputs, right? So whereas 250 years ago, we had a, a very limited set of information inputs we could experience on a, a, a day, today, um, it's just perpetually growing exponentially, right? Data is just increasing and, it, and there's nothing about the trends of stopping that. So it's our institutions don't provide us a means of kind of grappling with the present and kind of overcoming the, the challenges um, because, frankly, we're a little bit dogmatic about them, right? We've given our creations power over us. And a central theme of the book is they don't deserve that power. Um, so when we, you, th that is you know, um, kind of roundabout answer uh, to the context of the changing nature of time and kind of how, how the nature of our circumstances is directly influencing our ability to kind of overcome the challenges we have, but also just our, our daily observations and experience of the moment. Yes, yes. And you, you also mentioned in the changing nature of time that humanity struggles 
under the weight of our own creations. So whatever we're creating in this moment now, potentially in the future is just going to be obsolete. That's just how it is. You go on to say our technological and cultural ascendancy is outpacing the evolution of our legal and economic institutions, slowing progress and stifling creativity. This misalignment creates a tension that hinders our individual and collective capacity to become more, right? Mm -hmm. Which is as human beings where we are constantly seeking and desiring to become more. But um, you say we organize society with laws and theories designed for moments of linear change when information streams were slow in progress and frequency. Now exponential growth is increasingly commonplace and each of us is exposed to more information and more frequent change. And I, I was really interested in the concept of exponential growth. And you mentioned in the book that you're an 80s baby and you grew up in the 80s. And um, so you knew the world before the internet. Um, I also knew <laughs> knew the world <laughs> before the internet. And I'm giggling because I just am thinking about my high school basketball team on the couch in my parents' house in the basement. The first time the, some of the girls on the team had a flip phone and we were taking camp like pictures with the phone and it was the <laughs> coolest thing ever. And the only video game on the phone was maybe like the snake at the yeah. time. <laughs> and so, so yeah. And you, you, you mentioned that children mm. born into the world today will never know anything beyond exponential growth. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned how there's an inventor and futurist. His name is Ray Kurzweil. He's written several books exploring the exponential growth concept. And this I found pretty fascinating in his book, The Singularity is Near. He describes the details of the data behind human progress and how major technological advancements follow an exponential growth curve. And that he says in the near future, which he believes to be 2045, we should reach a technological singularity, which is a moment where we multiply our effective intelligence a billion fold and merge with the intelligence that we have created. And so from this point, the future becomes very difficult to manage. And he believes it will usher in an era of progress from humanity where machines elevate our experiences beyond anything presently available. So what are your thoughts on this prediction and how do you see humanity preparing for such profound transformation? Yeah, so I believe just as a quick caveat, I believe since then he's come out. It may it may actually be sooner than twenty twenty five, but based on his like initial no, charting, forty five. Oh, excuse 45. me, forty five. Okay. Um, but either way, you know, to, to that to that point, I think like the the trend with like technology. I think one of the things that, that I found most fascinating, and I'm glad you kind of picked it up too with the book, is his efforts is exponential growth is like a universal property. It's not just a property of our technology. In many ways, like it, he correlates it to um, biological evolution, right? You, it was 3 million, I believe it was 3 million years um, between a, a single cell organism and a multi a, a multi-celled organism. And then from, from there, it was 1.5 million years to like the next split. So like we've seen trends in biological evolution that also um, mimic exponential growth. The universe right now, is expanding, right? So there's nothing about the you know, our, our old vision of physics prior to the kind of crisis in physics in the immediate present. Um, there's the universe shouldn't be expanding; it should be slowing, right? Because it's we're going farther away from the initial singularity of the expansion, um, but that's not true, right? It's expanding. So 
when we think about the nature of reality in this kind of ex expansion, we think about technology to your, your, your point, your question, you know, I believe that there's, there's multiple kind of pathways it can take, right? So I think what's happening in our immediate present with like OpenAI and the Microsoft partnership as an example, is you're already trying to, you're already observing what is attempting to be like the corporate capture of it, right? Like the monopoly capture of it, which would essentially create, it would open up the doors for what is likely a very dystopian vision of the future. When you have like a single monolith in control of the most powerful computing, you it, it does a several things. First, it, it binds collective progress that could come from this technology, whether that be collective medical progress, like nanobots in our blood to kind of regulate disease, from the automation of logistics and supplies globally, from foodstuffs, et cetera. There's so many powerful directions that technology can support to truly bring, I won't use the word utopian because I don't believe that it will eliminate suffering. I don't believe that's part, like I believe that's generally part of the human condition. So it's not about utopia, but it is about like a kind of transcendence from this single market maximalism with like societies of class and caste, right? That's that's what I believe is the grace potential is kind of transcend that vision and organization of society. So if it continues on this current path where like they are able to like kind of have, for example, regulatory capture. Uh, so they're able to like bribe enough politicians where they get laws passed, where they fear monger about uh, AI being everywhere and they want it centralized. That's a pretty dystopian vision. Um, thankfully, the open source movement in, in AI and, and um, is is keeping pace with the, the private movement. In many ways, it's better. So I think that's what really, I think compared to like all past technolo technological revolutions, for example, you can like Windows and like operating systems, that wasn't really an open source movement like Linux couldn't really compete with Microsoft. But thankfully, the world is at a place in the immediate present where so many of us have access to these technologies and so many of us have the capacity to kind of play and experiment on our own where there's a real possibility that, and there's existing movements um, to have like a, you know, AI be a public good, which it should, right? It shouldn't be a, you know, a monolith. Um, so you know, I think it's really kind of the sky's the limits. I think what matters most in that question is the choice of direction. Because I think the path of least resistance is the present path, right? The present trajectory. It's like, you know, it's this kind of dogmatic adherence to a single version of kind of property and contract. Um, you know, earlier you mentioned, you know, the creation of, of systems and, and the things we would invent. And I would make the argument that all systems bear the imprint of their creation in two distinct ways. Um, the first is the, the purpose they are intended to serve. Right, which I would argue the moment that it's launched, it kind of starts to begin to deviate from that purpose because it gets used in different ways. Um, but also the, I would argue the values embodied by the creator, which inform the how that the the, the system, the software, et cetera, operates. It, it, it gives them a kind of a paradigm to operate from and kind of helps them construct a specific type of uh, operation and workflow based on you know, how they embody the world. So when we think of the, how do we maximize this kind of technological ascendancy and, and alongside it, right, the cultural ascendancy for collective good? You, that's the central theme of the book and the central argument I believe strongly in is it really do, requires um, reimagining our frameworks of meaning and value. I would argue that the, the, the inherited frameworks of meaning and value we have, um, specifically from the salvation religions, the salvation matters, are innately hierarchical. Um, and really are, are about the, the favoring of in-groups as opposed to out-groups. 
Um, and spiritual hierarchies pave the way for moral hierarchies, which I think is, is very much a part of our present problem. Um, so yeah, I think there's really like a sky's limit. It's hard for me to predict because anything I, I would say would just be wrong. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, so, but ultimately, I, I think there's a lot, uh, a, a lot of exciting things on the horizon. I think what matters most, again, is like collective orientation around a direction. And I think that's all, you know, what I am trying to achieve with the book and, and my present efforts is kind of provide an alternative where, frankly, their their alternatives haven't really existed. I I remember you speaking about that quite frequently in the book is how do we direct our focus and our energy? And so in the same way with artificial intelligence, how are we directing that focus and that energy in terms of what it can be used for? Uh, so there are many aspects that are positive about this transformation as well, right? We're learning faster, creativity is booming. We communicate further and deeper and build relationships with others. What we're doing now can be done in minutes. It used to take days, it used to take weeks, it used to take months, sometimes even generations of what we're learning with AI. So um, that being said, in your view, how will AI impact the journey towards self-realization? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a great question. I think it, in many ways, this kind of hits on similar themes of, of the previous kind of path we were exploring, which is essentially, it really depends on how it's it's directed. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I am, um, uh, maybe like six months ago, I was interviewed for like an AI ethics paper. You know, they were talking about like the potential negatives that could happen, right? Because you know, earlier I mentioned like dystopia, but there's also the negatives of individual actors, right? There's a lot of AI doomers who would talk about leveraging AI to generate, um, you know, biological weapons that are genetic specific. So like preci precision genetic engineering for, let's say, uh, negative purposes, negative killing, domineering, dominating, et cetera. Um, and I think all of that stuff, to be candid, is equally as likely as all the positive. I think there's you, the challenge with AI in its present trajectory is, is the genie's out of the bottle. Um, so I think the question is less of like, what? how does the technology impact the capacity for individual actualization and and more so like how are we developing human beings who are then going to integrate with this technology right we we live in a, a world today where we war for profit right we live in systems of class and caste that perpetually bind individuals to a very specific path in life right statistically if you're born abject poverty today you're going to remain there um so so long as we live in a system of class and caste we're, we're never going to be free and the challenge with that is it's also you know, that by its very nature, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, like it creates kind of this tensions, right? So I would make the argument that today in our present orientation um, in the United States and around the globe, the, the highest form of cooperation is, is transaction. Um, and transaction leaves us perpetually at risk, right? If I'm transacting with a stranger, the, the objective of transaction is pretty straightforward. Maximize my returns, uh, minimize my outputs. So when you're dealing with two people who have that kind of orientation, it always creates a potential to be taken advantage of, right? To be, whether it be financially, emotionally, spiritually, et cetera. It creates these kind of incentives to do that. So I think when we talk about our relationship with the world today, it, we have to understand that it's, it's indistinguishable from the systems that we surround ourselves. We are indistinguishable from the systems we surround ourselves with because they give us a certain shape. So when all of our shape, when, when the global hierarchy of the world gives you one shape to take, and it's essentially this like hyper-capitalistic accumulation transaction shape, 
you create a, a society of, of the have and the have nots. So it's unsurprising that the have nots are going to be resentful. And it's unsurprising that they're, you know, they might leverage these technologies because they're equally brilliant. They're equally divine. They have, you know, intelligence. It's, it's nothing about ability or capacity. It's just about primarily birth lottery is like the, for example, the largest determiner. And, and AI provides a tremendous kind of pathway to kind of elevate the collective, elevate the collective beyond birth lottery. But again, I bring it back. It's how do we as, a, as individuals, what do we believe is right and just and moral? But also collectively, how do we organize ourselves in the systems governing our lives? Because the path of least resistance is the present one. Um, and to that end, I think there's there's a lot of opportunity for things to go to go very wrong. On the positive note, right? If you have access to the technology and you're able to leverage it, I'll give a personal example. I've been doing some form of coding for probably since I was like 12, so about 30 years. And I was always mediocre at it. I kind of did it as a hobby, right? It was just something to do when I needed something done. I could just do it myself. But in the last six months, I'm not exaggerating. AI models have probably closed a six-year skill gap for me. I'm now able to create more things in more directions than I've ever been able to do. And that act of creation is an expression of my divinity in the moment. So in many ways, it's empowered me to heights that were just impossible six months ago. I mean, that to me is the most mind-blowing thing. Um, offline, you and I were talking that I, as a side, I don't really want to get too into it, but I launched a, a software company recently and I wouldn't be able to write that software six months ago, but because of AI, I, I was able to do it and, and teach myself and orient myself in a way that was just impossible. So I, I think it's just so thrilling, the potential it holds. Um, so the question is, how do we give more people more access as quickly as possible, but also kind of give them the capacity, not just the access, but the capacity to understand it and develop it in ways that are meaningful. Um, that's some of the work we do at SpiritDAO. Um, but it, yeah, so I, I think there's tremendous upside and downside, but again, it's more about who we are than the tech itself and the, the evolution of the tech, because the, the tech is just going to be manipulated by us. So ultimately, it's what kind of human beings have we developed? Um, and in the present, immediate present, right? We're presently carpet bombing uh, multiple cities of civilians. So you're having you know, a new generation of trauma. How do we get to net zero trauma in 50 years? How do we get to that point where we can really start to embody our powers? I like how you said that you're now using artificial intelligence and AI in order to do things that just six months ago was absolutely impossible. It was a, such a high learning curve. And that I do think that's something that's really exciting about the potential of it is that it is freeing us up to have our wildest dreams mm. be birthed into existence and freeing us up time-wise so that we can basically take that time and create what we want with it, but also opening it up to the masses, right? Because not everybody has the luxury of being able to explore with artificial intelligence. So I want to... I want to ask you, just kind of, I want to take a step back and just ask you about what led you to write self-actualization in the age of crisis and to subsequently launch Spirit Dow. Yeah, um, thanks for asking that. So it was a, a kind of, a, I, I have a personally, a, a very eclectic journey. In my early 20s, I founded a Web2 company. I, I ran for eight years and ended up getting acquired. But after that, and kind of like mid towards the end of that, I got deeply involved in local community organizing. I was doing a lot of 
environmental organizing. I was instrumental in getting the $15 minimum wage passed in New Jersey in 2017. I even ran for state office. So I, I did a lot of door knocking. I spoke to 3,000 people within my district. Um, and I, mutual aid, you know, many of those just grassroots boots on the ground organizing activism. And through my experience in the activism space and through my experience in the formal political space, I came to the realization that all of the available vehicles for change resisted by design. So like when we think about, for example, like the U.S. government, that's where our laws are made. That's you know, theoretically where our change is supposed to come from. Um, but the organization of, of the U.S. government structure is designed to create impasse. It's designed to be slow. It is designed to favor the interests of a wealthy elite um, as opposed to like the common individual. And this is, it goes full circle back to the, the mention of the Constitution. The founding fathers were a group of fairly elite white males, right? You initially, the only you know, vision of a, of a person who had the right to vote was a property owning white male. So when we think about where we are in the immediate present, yes, it's changed, but it's still minor evolutions of the same hierarchical division of individuals into class and caste. So when we consider our, our circumstances, right, the various crises that we're surrounded by, it seemed preposterous to me that the institutions that were responsible for proliferating the crisis, right, for actively spreading it, we're somehow going to do a 90 degree angle and, and or a 180, if you will, and kind of work towards an alternative. So to that end, I, I came to the conclusion, I'm highly influenced by many individuals. I mean, the book is pretty well sourced, but especially uh, the philosopher Roberto Mangiabera Unger. Um, the greatest challenge is not that we're here, but it's that we lack alternatives. There hasn't been a vision outside of what is for kind of getting us there. It's still commonplace today. You look at Twitter or um, that's really the only social media I'm involved in. But there's so many people who genuinely believe that the only possible solution is markets. And don't get me wrong, markets are a great thing. I'm I'm pro-market, but I'm not pro being dogmatic about only a single type of market, right? Today, everyone, you know, all of our institutions are bound to a singular form of property and contract. So all of this kind of like that kind of led me to like, all right, well, I'm gonna set out on this journey towards how do I create an alternative? And the book, you know, when you write a book, it often becomes something, right? The book was never intended to be what it became. But over time, it, it just ended up evolving that way. There was, uh, obviously there's some psychedelics in there that kind of gave me some a vision and direction that I, I wasn't previously kind of on when I was in that, um, in that space. But ultimately that was it. It was just the, the strong desire to like create change but recognizing that like I was wasting my time by just trying to do it through the existing institutions. One other point I'll just mention uh, on the point of like activism and organizing is that the vast majority of movement organizations are co-opted. So the idea, idea being that like you're like, I don't know if you remember, um, around the time of Bernie Sanders, his campaign, there was a huge movement for like Medicare for all that was independent of his campaign. It was a national campaign, right? Where's it got? It's gotten nowhere. I mean, they raised millions of dollars, if not tens of, of, of millions of dollars. Ultimately, it's always a competition in our, at least in our present organization of government, of where the capital goes, right? The repealing of Citizens United allows unlimited funding from private interest groups. And more importantly, it allows to anonymize that data, that, that capital contribution. So people can donate to things and not have it point back to them. 
And I think that allows some really ill actors. And the the money flowing into our federal elections has expanded exponentially. And that's even trickled down to the state level. And I mentioned the book, right? Like in the very intro chapter, the book is incomplete. I am fractional. I'm only one individual. Like the vision is a collective vision. When I wrote the book, that's one thing I had in mind from the start was that it would evolve alongside its community of practitioners. It would evolve alongside people. Because I think when we think of our inherent spiritual philosophies, the challenge with them is they're static, right? They attempt to reinforce the past onto the present. But they were designed for a, a human time experience far distant from ours, right? They are bronze and iron age religions. Um, we now live in the age of self-learning machines. It's just a, a complete paradigm shift. So it's yeah. Yeah, so that that was kind of the inspiration. It was really frustration. And then it took about six years to write the book. It was like three years of research and then three years of writing every day. I almost finished it like three years to the dot. It was like three years, uh, just pretty consistent. So in this book, you talk about the age of crisis. Can you elaborate what the age of crisis is and how Spirit Dow aims to address? Yeah, yeah, I certainly can. So the the age of crisis is often referred to as the meta crisis, the poly crisis. I thought age of crisis was a little bit more catchy. There's a lot of different kind of evaluations and perspectives on it. I specifically evaluate it in the book from six distinct perspectives: the crisis of extinction, the crisis of the billionaire god king, extinction being our environmental crisis, which is the most evident. The billionaire god king primarily being about the, the structures of class and caste. I, I feel very strongly that we'll never be free within a society that favors in-groups over out-groups. Um, the crisis of information, truth, and trust. The crisis of elected misrepresentation. Information, truth, and trust being we live in a, a society where for-profit propaganda is the norm. It's almost impossible to believe anything. And now on the theme that you and I are going to get into, Corey, like with AI, it's, it's almost worse. I don't know if you saw, I saw an image the other day of like um, an AI generated image. I think it was mid journey. Someone holding a post-it like hi um, r slash whatever. It was like a Reddit forum, but it was like a verification post that was indistinguishable from like someone holding a pen. So I think we're really starting to get, and I mean like in the next year to that point where like you can't believe what you see almost to some extent. And, and that's a, that's a genuine crisis because it greatly diminishes our trust in in the world. It diminishes our trust in others. And, and most importantly, right, it diminishes our trust in ourselves. Can I believe what I'm taking in? Can I, am I processing this accurately? Elected misrepresentation being that the world is full of weak democracies and in the United States is the worst offender. It's just, it's a corporatocracy. There's no illusion that there's a representative democracy, at least representative of the people. Um, the crisis of, of productivity and participation which in the similar vein of our conversation, the nature of work is changing. And we are entering an era where an increasing amount of people are left out of the productive agenda of society. Now, historically, that's happened before, right? The Industrial Revolution. But the, the challenge was in history, there were shortcuts, right? So if you worked um, in a farm or you were like a sustenance farmer, I could take you and put you in a factory and say, Tori, pull this lever. Just pull the lever all day. Just pull it. You can manage that, right? Like you needed, they basically need people who are like smart enough to pull the lever, but not smart enough to um, seek more, to seek like a higher position, to question why they had to pull a lever for 12 hours a day. The challenge in our immediate present is there is no shortcut. There is a major gap between people who can use ChatGPT to write software, to build a product, 
and people who don't have any of those skills. And that's, and a lot of that is, it's not just something that you can just like read and repeat. It's analytical. It's thoughtful. It's like proactive imagination is a core component of that. And I think we haven't developed our school systems, for example, um, prioritize obedience. And they were really designed for like an industrial era. It's like, do this, think that, repeat what I say, right? The, but that's not the nature of of reality, at least it's not the most advanced form of working today. So, so that's already a problem. And we've already seen like robotics automate a lot of like blue collar jobs, but like AI is now going to automate a lot of like accounting, law, like a lot of those jobs that were professional white collar jobs where you were in the upper middle class or elite classes are, are also going to be you destroyed. Um, and I think that that provides a, a genuine crisis and that, that that's going to be a problem. And then finally, the crisis of, of doubt, desire, death and dogmas, which is ultimately the crisis of spirituality that the crisis kind of brings us to confront in the moment. Those are many, many different areas that um, are very challenging and often unanswerable and can at times leave one being feeling hopeless in a way y your book it, it discusses the concept of the single truth and so can you elaborate on that idea and how it can be applied in practical terms in today's society particularly with our fast-paced technological and societal changes that we're seeing before us yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is where we get into the optimism. So if I brought you down before, my intent is to 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 bring us up. But um, and, and no, you do that like very well with the book. I mean, this <laughs> in so many ways you're you're really highlighting solutions, and that's one of the reasons why I like the book is because it's not just like here are all the problems. You yeah. actually bring the reader and observer into ways that we can create change for ourselves. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I think that's that's one of my major critiques of like the larger meta crisis space is it's a lot of talk about the problems. So I wanted to focus on, well, let's imagine an alternative. Let's let's do something different. So the the single so the book I I want to like share with the your your audience that the book is intended to be a framework for a non-religion religion. I say that in the context of it is a spiritual orientation because I do believe genuinely that the only way we kind of get ourselves out of this crisis, these various crises, meta-crisis, polycrisis, is through binding spiritual renaissance to systemic reformation. So let's dive into the, the single truth and what that is. Cosmology and physics have undergone pretty profound transformations in the last decade. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of highlight some high-level things. First and foremost is the, the understanding of the Planck epoch, the Planck epoch being like the initial moment of the universe's existence when, when it sprang into action. And it, it created a crisis in physics because all of our known laws of the universe, gravity, strong and weak nuclear forces, these things that we thought for a long time were static, were unchanging, break down in that initial moment. So we now know that, there, we now believe, I mean, it's impossible to truly know it, but well, our observations tell us that the initial moment of the universe was a single thing. The universe existed as a superheated whole. The entire universe was one instance. And what happened is as it cooled, things began to separate. 
The single truth comes from observations of teams of physicists. There's two papers I've read, only one is cited in the book because one came out after the book, of observations of radiation in the cosmic microwave background. So the cosmic microwave background is like the radiation map of the universe that we can see from our you know, coordinates on Earth. And uh, a team of physicists essentially observed radiation and measured it that was older than our universe. Now, for that to be accurate, right, for that observation to, to be real, it implies that there was something prior to this universe. Because if there was nothing prior, that, that couldn't exist. Now, when it comes to physics and cosmology especially, uh, cosmology especially, I, I think it's important to note that it's, it's vital when we think about these things not to confuse our desire to make sense of the world with the belief that everything we observe must make sense. Okay, so in that context, I make the argument in the book that if there was a universe before ours, there's very likely one after ours. And in that case, we inhabit one of many sequential universes. I want to highlight the word sequential. This is not multiverse theory. That's actually fallen out of fashion in the physics community because it's it's, it's untestable. Like you can't, it's, it's mathematically fun, but you can't measure or even you know, begin to test these creations, these multi-universes. But the idea that we live in one universe at a time, but before ours, there was an, you know, another one, there'll be one after, gives us this concept of sequential universes. Now, we can never know I want to be clear, like we cannot measure another universe, right? If you've ever seen a picture of the, the known universe, if you ever look at space pictures, we know that we are so infinitesimally small on Earth here in, you know, in, in the construct of the universe that our ability to measure another universe is beyond our wildest dreams, right? Like we, we can, right now we're still stuck in our solar system. But I would make the argument that that doesn't absolve us from having to choose a direction. Now, the inherited salvation narratives, and I want to put a quick context because you'll hear me mention them a lot. It's not in any way or shape or form a diminishment of the Eastern religions, but it is to say that the salvation narratives have had an outsized systemic influence on the world. And that's a really important point because they are hierarchical and they've influenced and justified the hierarchical division of individuals. So... The salvation narratives do choose for us, right? They've chosen a direction. They've said there's nothing. There's some, There's a creator. So there's a being, something above, beyond. And then there's something. So again, it imbues a deep hierarchy in our vision of spirituality. It imbues a deep hierarchy in who we believe we are. I argue the alternative. There was never nothing. Infinity is the default. If there are, in fact, sequential universes then we live in an infinite sequence of moments. And this is, I want to, I want to, you know, I'll share something with you. I don't, I don't know if I've ever shared it in like a, a podcast before, but like when I published the book, it's been about like 15 months. I was frankly afraid, right? Am I going to publish this book? And like in six months, there's going to be some new revelation that just demolishes the six years of work I just did. Am I going to be, I have no problem being wow. a fool. Right. But it's like uh, that, that was a fear. Uh -huh. Fortunately, physics and cosmology over the last 15 months continue to reinforce the theories I put forth. Everything about our hard sciences continues to orient with the infinite.
it continues to orient with the base nature of reality is this quantum state. It arises from a, a state of possibility and probability. We inherit an ever-present infinite now, right? The past is always inaccessible. The future is unknown. It's only ever now. And to that point, there is, in fact, a single truth. Change is the single truth. And we all know that from our subjective experience, right? We can say there's two types of truths. There's subjective truth, our lived experience, which is real. And there's objective truth, measurable things that I can measure and share with you and you can measure and they, they come up the same thing. We already know that our objective truths change all the time because our objective truths are just a limitation of our collective knowledge within a moment. And obviously our subjective truth changes, right? Everything changes all the time. Our experiences changes. Um, you, For example, you don't love two people in the same way, right? Two different people, you love them in different ways. So change is the single truth. And I think what, what is, you know, in the last 10 years, what is really can solidify that statement is the material nature of reality being infinite. It's not static. It's perpetually changing. We can look at it um, through the concept of sequential universes, which is the orientation of infinity, which I like. Um, so there's, there's a movement to kind of link it to thermodynamics, which at, at the molecular state, things are perpetually in motion. So either way, that is uh, that is the kind of grounding in combination with the relational universe is the kind of grounding of the revised spiritual project. Because if the nature of the universe is in fact infinite change, and that's the only true, when I say truth, I mean it in a universal commonality. Like the idea that like all of us can agree that that is an accurate statement. It represents all of our collective observations. It applies itself to both objective and, and subjective truths. Um, we finally have a universal commonality that we all share. Regardless of location, regardless of birth lottery, it's the one thing that all of us can agree on. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And in combination with the relational universe, it kind of calls us to demand more, to, to reorient ourselves around what is, as opposed to what our inherited dogmas prefer it to be. Yes. So the single truth being change. That being said, We've touched on an age of crisis and the different aspects of the, the, our current crisis that we're living in. I'd, I'd next, I'd like to go into the individual actualization and then leading into systemic actualization. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, just talking more about your spirit DAO, the decentralized autonomous organization that you are creating. And I think that we can end our conversation around that. So. Tell me more about how an individual living in today's society can self-actualize in order to create more of a life that they want for themselves. For sure. So when we think about self-actualization um, in the book, in a, in a relational universe governed by the single truth, a quick aside, a relational universe is is not a new philosophy, right? This is Hindu, Vedic, Buddhist um, in many ways, the Tao Te Ching, right? These philosophies that the individual and the circumstance are a single happening, right? And that's further reinforced by the single truth. We inherit this moment. Therefore, we have to redefine self. Self more accurately, to most accurately define the self, we say the, it's the relationship between an individual and their circumstance within a given moment. Because our access and agency within a moment is perpetually bound to where we found ourselves surrounded by. Right, if it, it, much of which again is is kind of predicated on birth lottery. So, in the context of individual actualization, there's a lot of different kind of discussions I talk about in the book. A, a large part of it is 
embracing a new framework of core values. So in the book, I've developed a framework of core values that I believe more ideally I orients the individual to maximize their divinity in the moment. So that's a core concept of the spiritual project. There are two observable infinities in the universe, the universe itself and human imagination. And the alignment of those two represents divinity in the moment. So when we think about individual actualization, our quest individually as a person is how can I maximize the ability, how can I maximize the moments I have where I'm aligning the observable infinities, right? I'm creating the new. Because that's how I become more godlike, right? That's what I'm most powerful. I think the revised spiritual project, the non-religion religion outlined in the book, specifically orients divinity as something that is absolutely accessible, right? We're both of infinity and within it, within it as fractions, uh, but of it as part of the larger totality of the moment. So we want to maximize our ability to leverage that. And the core values I've developed, I'll, I'll kind of go through them briefly. You can remember them with the acronym of Reframe Courage. They are relation, right? Which is the belief and practice of recognizing the divinity of other, recognizing Tori, that you and I are a single happening occurring in this moment, experiencing itself from two distinct perspectives. And in recognizing that, you are equally divine as me. And that's important because if you genuinely embody that, it kind of creates a restlessness with the present circumstance and the organization of society. Equity. Equity is the belief and practice in fairness, both in our, our personal relationships, but also our systemic relationships. Uh, flexibility. Flexibility is the belief and practice in not projecting our expectations on a moment, right? This isn't very much influenced by, for example, Buddhist philosophy. You hear often about desire is the root of all suffering. And, and I would make the argument that we are unable to transcend desire. That's that's not a realistic goal. That's part of being human. We're always going to want the next thing. And that's been true since we were you know, nomadic. It's, it's true now. But what matters is being able to embrace the moment, to inherit this moment and be have it possess an awareness of it where your expectations of it are not causing you frustrations or pain. Because ultimately... That's all it is, right? You inherit this moment and it's, we get frustrated, not that things are wrong, but that they don't meet our expectations. Things aren't wrong. They just are the way they are. We prefer them to be different. The next one is restraint. Restraint is uh, discipline, both discipline choice uh, in, in ourselves, but also our interactions with others. And I think that discipline for ourselves is pretty obvious, but uh, it's important that when we think about restraint, when it comes to others, it's that our efforts are not proactively diminishing another. I'm not building something for myself that will bring me whatever, wealth, power, status at the cost of others, right? Everything about our present system kind of ignores that part. It says, hey, just build what you got to build. And if a group suffers because of it, nah, you, so what? That's part of the, the game. Um, I argue that that should not be a core valuation by. We should recognize the other as equally divine and such uh, you know, have uh, embrace a core value of restraint in our interactions. Um, awareness. Awareness is just bringing awareness to the, the single truth. Five breaths. You and I practiced in the very beginning. We did a, a breathing exercise in the book. I suggest five breaths to bring yourself to the moment. That's something I personally embody. When you talk about individual actualization, how do I embody my, my day? Anytime I shift my direction of focus, I, I do five breaths. Just bring myself to a total focus. So I'm not carrying those past moments, which are gone. 
right? They're on, they're, irre they're irrelevant to the immediate present. Um, so I always want to be totally, wholly engaged in the direction I'm pursuing. And that's true if it's with my family. It's true if it's with my work. If it's with play, right? If I need to play a little bit, I need to play some games, I'm playing games. I'm not guilty about anything else, right? That's what I'm doing. So bring awareness to that. The M is minimalism. The belief and practice of just the reduction of wants. Ultimately, my argument is the minimalist is home anywhere. And that's the kind of individual we want to develop. That's a powerful individual who's not attached to things, who things do not possess power over them. Um, enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is just uh, the belief and practice and just embracing life with joy and the genuine enthusiasm, the will to create. Because as bad as things are, things are excellent, right? It, and and it's that's not a contradiction, right? They can be both. They're not mutually exclusive. It's an awful time in regards to the larger meta crisis, the age of crisis. It's also the best time ever to be alive. So you have to be excited about you know, what you're doing. Uh, and then finally, courage, right? Courage is fearlessness in the face of the unknown. And ultimately, I argue that if, if you embrace these values, the reframe courage values, it does several things. It, it better allows you to direct your focus and energy within a moment. And I would argue that in a relational universe governed by the single truth, any direction of focus and energy within a moment is an act of becoming. And when we truly embrace that, and we embrace and cultivate our power to direct our focus and energy, we become more powerful. I think of people, I have some people within my circle, my close circle, who suffer you know, from alcoholism, struggle with it. And I think in many ways they're caught in the wave. I think that happens to many people. You get caught in the flow. And then occasionally you wake up and you say, how did I get here? Right? I'm washed up on the shore. How did I, I get here? The question is, how powerful can we make ourselves where at any point in time, we can redirect our folks' energy? We're never trapped in a direction. We're always able to say, no, I won't do that, or yes, I will. Right? And some things are easier than others. Recently, I started in late December, but I, I decided to go on like a total detox, like caffeine, cannabis, especially including caffeine. I haven't been like sober um, God, like 20 years, I mean, at least, right? I, longer than that. So it's like, and every day is the temptation still there, but it's my ability to bring awareness to my ideal, right? My vision of the ideal visualization, I think is a big part of individual actualization is being able to imagine, make objects of a future you want and pull them, bring them into the present. And I believe those core values are a kind of core component of that. Finally, one other thing I'll talk about, and then I'll pause if you want to pull on some threads is being an authentic imposter, right? I sit here and I say all these things to you, full knowing, right? That my knowledge is fractional. I, the vast majority of, of life happens to me as it does to anyone else. I do my best to navigate it, but I'm also authentic in the fact that I don't know anything. I have no conceptualization of the mathematics of physics, right? My capacity, my strength is being able to connect a lot of dots in a larger web. I think there's a, a real challenge in both the past and the present. For example, the Martin Luther's 99 Thesis, what, what that was, was a revolution of like the church was taking money. You had to pay for penance. So you could only get into heaven if you paid. It was like a, a capital scheme. And it's like the same concept of only the priest can talk to God. No, absolutely not. Each of us possess an aspect of, of the infinite. Each of us possess that infinite imagination. We are all equally divine. So, you know, and recognizing that None of us know everything, and, and you should be open and, and, and okay with being authentic in your imposter. And a large part of that is also knowing when to let go, knowing when to let go of things that obviously don't align with you. That's the most obvious, but sometimes there's things you have to let go of that, that you love, 
Uh, in the book, I give the example, I, I had a 20, 25 year wrestling and jujitsu career. I was very competitive for some time, but that's a young man's game, you know, or young woman's game as well, right? And I've had some neck injuries and as now as a father, right? Uh, it, it's just too big of a risk. And I had to let that go. And it, that was a big part of how I identified with myself, right? That was a huge part of my, the ego I had constructed. But being able to let that go is being authentic in your posture, knowing that it doesn't serve me in the moment. And that's okay. I can love it. I can embody it. Um, but it's just not something I, I do anymore. I'm now an active yogi. So I'll pause there, Tori. Any threads uh, of interest or any other direction? Yeah. So how did you get to that point as people we can identify so strongly with something? It really becomes our identity. You had this practice for 22 years. And, you know, you get to a point where you're like, okay, this is no longer serving me or you might have other goals. But for some people, letting go of that identity and letting go of a, a death of an unrealized dream, that can be incredibly challenging. And mm. um, I love how you just mentioned examples of moments of, of addiction, even how you're stopping with uh, drinking caffeine and something that. I mean, I know I do on a daily basis. It's something I'm trying to be more mindful of, but it's just like, who would we become if we could literally just have an idea and, and immediately all the cravings are gone? So can you say something to that? Yeah, and I think you really have several really great points. I want to kind of pull on several threads. So the first I want to mention is the cravings are not gone just because you have the idea, right? And this goes back to the crisis of desire. Desire is ever-present. And I also want to preface I'm doing like a six month purge. I might go back. I love coffee. I mean, I candidly love it. Uh, and I also love cannabis. So it's like, I'm not saying this is the end all. I'm just saying that I'm doing it just to do it for myself. Now, to your point about, because I think it's a really, really great point. We construct these visions of ourselves, these egos, right? And we say, okay, this is who I am. How do I let go of that? I would make the argument that Nothing we do is who, who we are. The only thing we are is the observer within the moment. And the greatest exercise of our power is the choice to direct ourselves in a specific direction. So all of my accomplishments, these are things that I've done in the past, right? Maybe. I mean, I kind of remember them. I don't really embody them in the immediate present. But they don't define me. Nothing about those is I am more than everything I've ever done. So are you, so is everyone else. I think it's very easy to construct an ego and an identity. But what that is, is an attempt to hold on, right? It's an attempt to hold on to something. But in a relational universe governed by this single truth, right? It's pointless to hold on. Change is the single truth. You will perpetually evolve whether you want to or not. The question is, what is your capacity to direct the flow of that evolution? And how do you maximize that? I think it's it, I think it's a trap to identify ourselves with these things. I mean, of course, they shape our perspective. There's no doubt about that, but they are not us. To the point of unrealized dreams, I, I'll quick aside, like my wrestling thing was it was a realized dream. Like, that, so that's not necessarily applicable in, in my personal circumstance because for 25 years, I wasn't going to be a UFC fighter. That was out of the game. And I had several neck injuries, so I was forced to stop. Otherwise, I'd risk par getting paralyzed. But when it comes to like letting go of a dream, it's really fascinating because with the present trajectory, like this conversation with Spirit Down with this book, I'm doing this thing. 
and I'm out there. It's a dream. It's a vision. I've visualized this and I'm, I'm doing it because I, I a, genuinely believe it's helpful. I believe I've had people share with me that it's been impactful to them, uh, which deeply fills me with joy. And, and um, But ultimately, I now embody a state where I'm doing this ultimately for the sake of doing it with no expectations. In fact, in many ways, my mission's already done. I've changed at least one person's life with the book. And I could feel really good about that. And I think when we talk about unfulfilled dreams, you know, let's say, let's use the, the wrestling example, but it could be any example. I think oftentimes we take a dream, we take a path, and we set this expectation. Like, let's say wrestling. I want to be a, an Olympic wrestler. I want to be an MMA fighter, a UFC fighter, right? I know many UFC fighters. I've trained with many guys. Um, the problem is, is when you bind yourself to an, you know, a, a future, when you try to make a future an object, you change it in the nature, very nature of just trying to make an object. Doesn't mean you can't achieve it. But the dream should be doing the thing because you love doing the thing. And ultimately, that's got to be enough because that's what you can control. That's what's in your power. That's your directing of focus and energy, right? I easily have spent thousands, I don't know, maybe 10,000 hours. I don't know how many hours on the mat you would spend wrestling five days a week for, for 25 years. I mean, it's a lot. And it's okay that I never was a world champion, right? Even though I was competitive, right? I lost. I lost in several important matches. And that's okay because I look back on it and say, I was doing that because I loved it. And I think that's the key thing. I think when we try to bind our dream, our visions of the good to a very specific outcome, you're setting yourself up for failure. That's not the nature of reality. I think what matters most is orienting yourself in a direction that brings you genuine joy, that you love, even if you're bad at, right? I always joke, I had a 25 year career. My first two years, I went, oh, I went two and like 32 my first two years of wrestling. Right. It, towards you know the end of my career, I, I was winning championships uh, across the Northeast. So it's it, it just it, it's about doing the thing. And I think it's when people like say like, oh, you know, it's my dream. It's crushed. Your dream's not crushed. It's just your desire to be a specific place is crushed. And yeah, it may have been a dream, but you can still do the thing and love it. And if if the thing doesn't bring you joy, then let it go. You hear that perspective. And um, I read in your book that successful transformation is all about having an alternative direction, right? So in letting go of something, what is that alternative direction that you can go in? And for people that don't necessarily have an alternative direction, I think that can be where people kind of get into funks or go mm. down a more like depressed state because there's not the next thing for them to fixate on for mm -hmm. them to spend all of their time doing and tinkering with and you know just forgetting about the past sure it's easy to forget about the past when you actually have something to focus on in the present moment that you love but you also subtly address folks who haven't necessarily found that thing and I'm going to read what you say and I really I really like it you say if there is no immediate alternative, we embrace curiosity throughout our process, knowing that over time, exploring a variety of directions will encourage us toward alternatives and alignment with our vision for the good. I love that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad it resonates. And I, I, 
I'm glad you like quoted because I was like literally what I was thinking about when you're mentioning your, <laughs> your question because it's, yeah, I mean, ultimately that's it. We want to embody, especially to a full circle to tie it into the meta-spirituality and like the technological ascendancy. There's never been a better time to be an explorer, to be curious, right? I think that's just it. We have to embrace, we're not always going to have that direction. We're not always going to have that thing. And exploring is both a worthy pursuit, right? It's worthy of your time, worthy of your direction of focus energy, because also I think a, a large part of that is learning what you like and what you don't. And, and I can just give a, a personal example. Um, I'm very proud of my partner. She, When we first met, she was a fashion designer in, in New York City. And that sounds like a super glamorous job, but I assure you it's not. It's like you're a cog in a machine. You just like pump out designs. And she really struggled for a long time with like, what's next? What's after this? Because she eventually, she like hated it. And at the time when we were together, I encouraged an exploration and she went through many paths. She went through a nursing possible exploration, going back to get her master's exploration, a, a couple of things. And it ultimately settled on software development. And if you've ever learned how to code, it's, you're terrible at first. It's awful. It's like a really tedious process, but every day, just a little bit, right? I think that's just it. We for, it's in many ways, we forget how the direction of our focus and energy compounds over time. And we, we kind of build these foundations. That's it's how I think about this, this process. Every day, if I can lay one brick, I have like a personal philosophy. It's like no zero days. Every day I do one thing that's like moving me to closer to my ideal. Um, and that doesn't mean I work every day, right? My ideal is certainly spend a lot of time with my family. So like I do that. But on the days, Monday through Saturday, if I'm like, am being productive, I, I don't ever get upset about like, oh, I didn't get this done. It's just as long as I got one thing done. And even if that day is spent failing all day, right? Which is a terrible feeling. Um, it's just, you just learned all these things that aren't going to work, right? It's just like, you're still building, you're putting those bricks down, you're building that foundation. So I think, again, it's really about an orientation. How are you conceptualizing your inheritance of the moment? How are you conceptualizing your power within the immediate present? And how are you directing your focus and energy? And just like directing it towards frustration at yourself is a waste of time. I mean, I'm not saying that it's in our complete control. Certainly our emotions are not. And emotions obviously change the physical state of the universe for us, right? If we feel as you and I both share that we were ill last week and you know, you're ill, everything about the universe is terrible, right? Like it's just, uh, things are more annoying, it's colder, it's hotter, it's, it's not, you know, et cetera. So I think yeah. it's, yeah, we want to incorporate that kind of curious play and exploration as a, as a part of our daily lives because that is, those people who can do that are going to be the most powerful in an in era of like AI. Right. Yes. It's the consistency and the dedication and the devotion to the curiosity or to your passion project and to not stay fixated on this dream of where you want to be, but just learning to be in the moment with what you're doing in a state of, of gratitude and joy. And for me, zero days, mine would be kundalini yoga and the sauna. Mm. Those are the two things. I do my kundalini yoga practice in the morning, do my breath work and breathing exercises. And then I have been obsessed with the sauna lately. It's mm. helping me so much, just completely zen out. And I love to sing. The reverb in the sauna is absolutely fantastic. I feel a little bit like Moaning Myrtle from Harry Potter, where I go in there. I'm just like, I'm just like singing and not really caring. I love it. I love it. Yeah. 
So lastly, let's talk about the DAO, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. For those listening unfamiliar with what a DAO is, would you mind just briefly explaining what it is and what you are accomplishing or what you hope to accomplish with Spirit DAO? Sure. So a little bit of context to preface it, because it's a central theme. In the book, we talked about individual actualization. There's also systemic actualization. In systemic actualization, I introduced the concept of the eight dignities, a suite of global public works that shifts wealth from dynastic wealth, the idea that like you're only as wealthy as your parents were, to societal wealth. You're born in this era of abundance. You should reap the rewards of that and be able to imagine in your own direction. Spirit DAO, so let's start with what a DAO is, a decentralized autonomous organization is typically, isn't typically, it's an on-chain organization. That means it leverages blockchain technology. Uh, blockchain is like a ledger. A ledger is like an accounting book, right? It just, it, it records transactions and it allows individuals across the you know, globe to essentially coordinate together. The ideal, the, the reason that DAOs are, are really the ideal form of organizational work is that smart contracts, which is essentially code that you execute to do a specific thing, automate much of the process involved with traditional organizations like getting paid or um, voting and things like that. So it allows individuals to work together with a much greater degree of trust. Um, it's the code is they say code is law. So like what the smart contract says and does, it does whether or not, like once the conditions are met, you don't need to like ask your boss to give you your paycheck. Like it automatically kind of funnels in. And what Spirit DAO is, so, so this journey started about 15 months ago when like I initially launched the book. And I spent like the first three and a half, four months lecturing and speaking and, and touring and giving away books. And I found um, that it just resonated. People really resonated with the concept. And the last chapter of the book was Spirit DAO. Now, full disclosure, all of the books today that have the Spirit DAO chapter was like my initial vision. And what it's evolved into is something very different, very much for the better I'm excited to share. But it's not at all organized like we I had initially imagined it. And what Spirit DAO is, is, is exactly that. We're a decentralized community. We are an active DAO. We have members. We have votes on chain. We have budgets and fundraising. We have a community vault. And essentially what we are and how it came to be is like once it started to resonate, I spent like the eight last the next eight months like building the DAO alongside some community members who were interested. And now we're live. And we serve three core purposes. So the first is to spread our message. Uh, of the single truth and relational universe. We're spreading our, our non-religion religion, our religion uh, of an alignment with the two and our core values. And, and through those core values, the, the eight dignities. Um, the second is to serve our community. So we serve our community through the, the production of both physical and virtual utility. That is to say, so behind me, you can see there's these graphic novels. So that's one of the projects the Dow did was Obviously, Toya, you know, I'm super impressed you read the book. Um, it's a 500-page nonfiction book. It's not an easy read, you know. It takes some dedication. But we wanted an easier path to entry, knowing that, like, not everyone's going to read a 500-page book, right? The Dow fundraised and made this graphic novel. And the graphic novel is a 50-page with some gorgeous art, and it's really a summarized, chopped-down version of, of the core principles of the book. Um, so that's one example of utility. So we build artifacts. And um, in that vein, our, our mid to long-term goals is to acquire physical space. Uh, I'm a big believer that we need to have, outside of decentralized community, we need to have a place-based community as well. Um, to kind of really uh, build our, our collective well-being, kind of cre create the intentional community that we want to. And then the third is to further the eight dignities, which is that suite of the systemic rights. So just as a quick uh, information, the eight dignities are food and water, um, housing, healthcare, 
education, information, communication, transportation, and energy. I think that's eight. Um, and the idea, again, being that we want to, so with SpiritDAO functions as our, our vision is, we're essentially, we're in the process right now of getting our, our 501c3 religious corporation. We're already in that process. And um, so we're forming a religion. And the idea is that we will act uh, primarily as a community vehicle and as a fundraising vehicle to support public goods. A public good is something that it doesn't have a profit motive. It lives on chain within those eight verticals. So we're, we plan, the major plan is to build community and, and be a major proponent and fundraiser and supporter of initiatives building public goods in those eight directions. So you can imagine it as something as simple as, do we sponsor a community vertical farm? Or do we sponsor software, open source software for, I don't know, like global logistics, right? The movement of, of goods and, and people. I mean, there's so many different directions it can take in terms of the eight dignities. Um, but we are primarily in, in our pr immediate present, or really in our infancy. We are kind of every day just kind of building it. And, and that's kind of what we do. So I'll pause there if there's any any different directions. But um, that, that's kind of where we're at now. How does Spirit Dow adapt or reinterpret ancient spiritual wisdom and practices mm. for the modern era? In the book, there's a, obviously a heavy influence. The relational universe is heavily influenced by uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Vedic philosophy. Um, there's also Confucianism and, and, the, and Taoism as well. So a lot of our like concept of the relational universe is, is embraced by that. We have two sessions a week that we meet, and we've been doing it for a year. We have a, a weekly, what we call contemplative practice, where we talk a lot about the application of our philosophy and practice to the everyday. So our last one was actually a comparative religion kind of discussion where I we made like a matrix of like how does how do the inherited religions deal with doubt, desire, and death, and how do we deal with it? How does our philosophy deal with it? Where we are now, because we're so new, is kind of equipping all of our members to like genuinely understand the philosophy and practice outline in the book in a way that A, like resonates with them, but B, they can make their own. And that's really important, right? The single truth requires no believers. Like the success of universes, whether or not you and I believe it, doesn't matter. They're still going to happen. So I think, again, it's it's more about like, how do we develop a form of spirituality that like makes sense for the individual, while at the same time, grounded in universal commonality. So our central philosophy is, is based on the existing tenets of existing historical religions. At the same time, though, I do strongly believe that they're not enough. I think each of them addresses doubt, desire, and dogma in specific ways, but leaves you wanting. And I think most importantly, none of them bind their spirituality to a systemic project. And I would argue that a relational universe governed by the single truth, where we are inseparable from our circumstances, if your spiritual beliefs do not create a restlessness that translates into the elevation of the collective through systems, through the building of constructs, then it's inadequate to meet the needs of the moment. And that is a big part of my perspective. It's not to bash, I, I want to be clear, it's not to bash people who, who believe the salvation narratives. Um, it's not to bash that whether they've done good or bad in the world, of course they've done both, right? That's obvious. Um, it's more that they, they, they are just inadequate to help us transcend our present circumstance. That is why an alternative is necessary. They won't do it. In many ways, they're responsible for leading us to the moment. Um, got a little off track there, but that's how we incorporate historical practice and wisdom into our efforts. 
have any advice for someone who's interested in joining Spirit DAO? Yeah, I mean, we have a, a welcoming community. You don't need to be a member to attend our, our meetings. Um, you can go to Spirit DAO, that's S-P-I-R-I-T-D-A-O.org, and you can see all of our channels. We have a Telegram that's really active. We have a Discord. We have a communal AI, SenseMaker AI is something we use in our, our Discord, which is really fun. I've just integrated with, you can like talk to it through the Telegram and the Discord. And uh, I would just encourage you to come check us out. And if what I'm saying resonates with you. We are looking for leaders. We are looking for people who, I mean, we really have like two you know, member paths. Um, we have supporting members who are just like, um, and I want to be clear, we have a membership. You can be a member for free. There's a proof of curiosity path. Or you can donate. It's a means-based membership. So donating doesn't necessarily get you more uh, advantage in the DAO. It is intended to be means-based. So we have members who've donated a wide, you know, they range from 20 bucks to eight grand. But there's, again, there is the free tier and that's a, a non-issue. And you can be a part of our community. You can access our resources. If you want to be a, a, a like truly active, what, having what we call governance rights. Governance is the ability to direct the organization. We have an onboarding process. So to be someone who can vote in spirit doubt, everyone has to contribute the same three, three and a half hours. Uh, and what that onboarding process is, is the combination of self-guided learning. So we have like videos and then communal learning. So like after like the, there's three phases in each phase, you connect with our community, our onboarding pod. And we just, does it make sense to you? We can talk to you about the experience, what you thought, can we improve, et cetera, and get your feedback. And then the last one, we talk, what do you want to work on? How do you want to be a part of our message pod? The pods are like small working groups that we, we organize ourselves in. And that's how you can be involved. So there's no wrong way. We appreciate supporters, even if you never attend a meeting and you just want to like get a membership to say, hey, you know, keep it up. If you want to be involved, this is the time. Like it's, we're early. Like we're still building this. The, the intention is how do we get to nine members? And from that nine, build a program where we can onboard the next 100. From there, how do we onboard the next 500? From there, how do we get space and then start to move from there? So our vision, we have a pretty robust roadmap and, and every day we're kind of making new strides. But if it's of interest, we would love to have you. Your insights are welcome. You will be heard. You'll be given space. Come share space with us. That's all I can advise. Great. Thank you so much. I was going to make a joke about exponential growth and, and then we're going to exponentially <laughs> grow. <laughs> we're going to 10 x. <laughs> yeah, this was a really great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And I really, really appreciate your presence, your attentiveness, and just thanks for writing this 500 page book. Thank you for um, really just taking the time to think a bit more deeply about the society in which we live and for offering your form of solutions in the time and present moment of how we can potentially improve ourselves and self-actualize and then move that into systemic actualization and uh, just really for the betterment of humanity. I appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, Tori, I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. This was an excellent conversation and uh, I really do appreciate it. I look forward to the next time. Thank you for listening to the Meta Spiritual Podcast, exploring the mystical, metaphysical, the metaverse, and mental health. 
Subscribe to our newsletter as we dive deeper into the multidimensional realms of artificial intelligence, virtual worlds, collective evolution, and the future of technology's impact on humanity. If you are a conscious brand, a CEO, founder, building in the Web3 space, I would love to have a conversation with you. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. It's linkedin.com slash Tori Madison. Thank you guys again for listening. I so look forward to speaking with you in the future, meeting you, IRL, and diving deeper into these conversations that are impacting us at a mental, physical spiritual level. How can the future of tech impact our mental health? Subscribe and listen to find out. Thanks guys. See you soon.